Today is Reformation Day. On this day, October 31st, 1517, a little-known Augustinian monk went to the castle church in Wittenberg and nailed to the door of that church 95 concerns that he had for the Roman Catholic Church. And that list of concerns was very quickly copied and translated into different languages and spread throughout Europe. And God began in that movement what has come to be known as the the greatest movement of the gospel in human history, beginning in the 16th century and continuing on throughout the world today. Luther's lists of concerns had to do with abuses and misunderstandings of the Bible that were being committed by the Roman Catholic Church. And those 95 theses became something of a call for reform in the Roman Catholic Church. And that reform was to be based upon a return to the written Word of God, to see the Bible as the full and final authority of God manifested for His people, His creatures. The message of the Scriptures, that God saves sinners by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, was to be the centerpiece, the hallmark of the Protestant Reformation. As Luther continued to study the Scriptures and to teach and to preach the things that God was teaching him from the Scriptures, their true meaning, the need for reform in the Roman Catholic Church became increasingly clear. And though Luther recognized the whole Bible as the authoritative Word of God, there was one New Testament book in particular that God used to arrest him, to focus his thinking, to help him rediscover the grace of God in the gospel. And that book is the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul's letter to the church at Rome. It was through the study of this book that Luther finally had the scales taken from his eyes and he came to experience the grace of God in Jesus. It was the book of Romans that taught Luther that the righteousness that God requires of everyone, God provides in Jesus Christ to all who trust Him. Christ's righteousness gets credited to those who believe Him and trust Him as God. Listen to the way that Martin Luther described the book of Romans and the preface that he wrote to this book as a part of his 1522 translation of the Bible into the German language. In the preface to the book of Romans, in that Bible, he writes this. This epistle is really the chief part of the New Testament. It is truly the purest gospel. It is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but also that he should occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of his soul. Luther closes out that preface with these admonitions and encouragements as well. In this epistle, we thus find most abundantly the things that a Christian ought to know. Namely, what is law, gospel, sin, punishment, grace, faith, righteousness, Christ, God, good works, love, hope, and the cross. And also how we are to conduct ourselves toward everyone, be he righteous or sinner, strong or weak, friend or foe, 
and even toward our own selves. Moreover, this all ably supported with Scripture and proved by St. Paul's own example and that of the prophets, so that one could not wish for anything more. Therefore, it appears that he wanted in this one epistle to sum up briefly the whole Christian and evangelical doctrine and to prepare an introduction to the entire Old Testament. For without doubt, whoever has this epistle well in his heart has with him the light and power of the Old Testament. Therefore, let every Christian be familiar with it and exercise himself in it continually. To this end, may God give his grace. Well, Luther rightly says that the letter to the church at Rome by the Apostle Paul is an excellent summary of Christian doctrine. As we've worked our way through the first 10 chapters of Romans, we have seen this illustrated time and time again. This book of Romans is the closest thing that we have to a systematic explanation of what the gospel is. We have nothing else that comes close to it in all of Scripture. Today, in our study through Romans, we come to the last explicitly doctrinal chapter of the book, and that is chapter 11. After this, beginning in chapter 12 down through chapter 16, Paul begins to make very explicit applications of all the doctrine that he teaches in those first 11 chapters. Martin Lloyd-Jones, perhaps the greatest preacher in the 20th century, says of Romans chapter 11 that it's one of the greatest and most notable chapters in the whole of the Bible. It is the conclusion of Paul's argument that he begins in chapter 9. If you recall, in chapter 9, Paul is concerned to start making the case to especially his Jewish readers that the word of God has not failed. He takes up this argument beginning in verse 6 of Romans 9, where he makes this assertion. It's not as though the word of God has failed. Now, the reason that Paul is making this argument, the reason that he feels compelled to explain this is because so few of his fellow Jews are being saved by this gospel. And yet the Jews were God's chosen people throughout all of Old Testament history. God gave to them rich blessings. He gave to the Jews, not others, his law. He gave to them his prophets. He made great promises to the Jewish people. He promised to send to them a Messiah, a Savior to rescue them. And Jesus is that Savior. Yet in the first century, most Jews did not see Jesus that way. They didn't trust him. They failed to recognize him as God's Messiah. And so they misunderstood what God was doing, which meant they misunderstood the way that God was fulfilling his promises of salvation. So in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, the Apostle Paul sets out to prove that God's word has not failed. He does this by showing that the promised salvation was never intended exclusively for the Jewish nation. That salvation was never intended to be based on bloodlines. Rather, God's salvation is for everyone, for Jews and Gentiles alike. It's all of grace. God's promised salvation 
was not intended for national Israel exclusively, but for all of spiritual Israel. Now, Paul makes this point explicitly in the second part of Romans chapter 9, verse 6. The second half of verse 6 says this, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not everybody who is a national Jew, an ethnic Jew, is a true spiritual Jew. That's the point he's making. Then he goes on in verse 7, and he says, And not all are children of Abraham because, we could say simply because, they are his offspring. God fulfills his promise of salvation not to the people who have Adam's blood flowing through their veins, but to the people who have Adam's faith in their life, who believe Christ the way that Adam believed Christ. This included Adam's son Isaac, who had faith like his father Abraham, but not Abraham's son Ishmael. It included Isaac's son Jacob, but not Jacob's twin brother Esau. Why Isaac? Why Jacob? But not Ishmael and not Esau. Why? Because salvation comes by God's sovereign grace, not bloodlines. As Paul puts it in chapter 9, verse 11, he said it was done this way so that God's purpose of election might stand. Now, Paul elaborates this point of God's sovereignty and salvation from Romans chapter 9, verse 6, all the way down through verse 29 of that chapter. And then he begins to argue that the fact that God is indeed absolutely sovereign in salvation in no way alleviates our responsibility to seek salvation from God. But the only right way to seek salvation from God is through faith and not works. We seek it by taking God at his word, by believing what God says and accepting the promises that have been revealed, which means trusting his son, Jesus Christ, as Lord. Now, most of the Jews in Paul's day failed at this point. They tried to make themselves right with God. They sought righteousness, but they did it through their own works. They tried to be good enough for God, thinking that they could keep his law sufficiently so as to be more righteous than others and be righteous enough that God would look upon them and say, oh, yes, I accept you because you have done so well. But of course, it is impossible to earn righteousness that is acceptable in God's sight. Because what God requires is perfect righteousness, unblemished righteousness. And none of us can ever attain that because of sin. Only one man has ever attained the righteousness that God requires. And that is the man Christ Jesus. And God gives Christ's righteousness to everyone who trusts in him. He does it by crediting to our account as we follow Christ in faith, as we depend upon him, we are justified. And this is true not just for Jews, but for Gentiles as well. In Paul's day, many Gentiles understood this. And so they were trusting Jesus and were being saved. But most of the Jews of his day 
didn't believe this, and so they rejected Christ and remained lost. The fault was not God's. The fault was their own, as Paul elaborates in these chapters. Throughout chapter 10, Paul makes this point and then ends that chapter with a quote from Isaiah chapter 62, where God says, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. That's the image that he wants his fellow Jews to see as they recognize Gentiles claiming to be right with their God through faith in a Messiah that they reject. Paul says, even our own prophet describes God saying, I've held out my hands to my disobedient people, my contrary people all day long. Well, that word picture, that image, that truth raises a further question. What's going to happen to Israel in the future? Is there no future for the Jews? Has God completely rejected them? Have they ruined any hope of ever experiencing God's grace in salvation? Well, Paul takes up that question in Romans 11, the chapter on which we will focus our attention for the next several studies in our working our way through this letter to the church at Rome. This morning, what I want to do is simply to introduce this pivotal chapter by pointing out the outline of Paul's argument in it so that we might see the case that he is making and following his reasoning, respond the way that he responds at the end of Romans 11 with praise and thanksgiving to God. Now, if you've not already taken a copy of the scriptures, let me encourage you to do that and open to Romans chapter 11. If you're using one of the Bibles provided for you, you'll see this on page 946. That's where it starts, 946. And I just want you to get the scriptures in front of you. I'm going to read the whole chapter in a moment, and I'm going to call attention to the divisions of it as we do something of a flyover of it this morning, and then God willing, in future weeks, come back and begin to work our way through it verse by verse. The three sections of Romans 11 break down like this. Verses 1 through 10 we see in those verses that Israel rejects God's grace. They do not accept His grace in Christ, and yet God doesn't call their rejection total. God's rejection of Israel because they they reject God's grace in Christ is not a total rejection. In verses 11 through 32, Paul shows that this rejection of God of His people, by God, of His people, and this rejection of Israel, of Jesus Christ, is not only not total, it's also not final. In other words, there's more to come. And then in verses 33 through 36, Paul closes out this chapter, this teaching, demonstrating that God's saving purposes, seen in the way He deals with the Jewish people as well as Gentile people, is praiseworthy, and it ought to call forth worship. So note these three divisions in Romans 11 as I read this chapter aloud, because I want to just again show the way that these three movements through the chapter fit together to provide something of a foundation for our future studies going forward. So hear the word of the Lord from Romans chapter 11. I'll read from verse 1 all the way down through verse 36. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. 
For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, if you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Well, that's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regard the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. 
for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. The certainty of God's saving purposes call for praise and worship. Paul here gives an overview of how God has dealt with the world, especially with his people throughout history. And as he explains it, and he comes to the conclusion of his argument, he can't help himself but burst out in doxology, expressing praise to God for his wisdom and his power and all that he has done in saving sinners. Well, since I plan for us to spend several weeks in this chapter today, I want to simply provide an overview of it. But before even doing that, there are two points that I want to mark out and call to your attention to serve something as a preface for all the rest of our studies of this chapter. The first is the acknowledgement that trustworthy Christian teachers have had difficulty coming to a clear consensus on the details of what this chapter teaches, particularly as it relates to the future of Israel. I mean, what's the relationship of national Israel to ethnic Israel to spiritual Israel? Well, those relationships are not as clear as we might like in this 11th chapter. And we're going to have to work our way through to try to understand how the spirit inspired Paul to use the words that he did about these relationships. A second point is this. Paul mentions in verse 25 that there is a mystery involved in what he's teaching. Now, when the New Testament uses the word mystery, it's not using it in the way that we typically think of a mystery, like an Agatha Christie novel or a Sherlock Holmes novel. But rather, it's not something that we have to figure out ourselves, but rather it's something that has been hidden that's now revealed. And so Paul is saying to us by using this word that God's way of manifesting salvation to Jews and Greeks and the future of Jews is has been a mystery, but has been revealed to him. And so now as we seek to understand what Paul has written here, we must recognize that Paul is giving to us that which was hidden prior to the first century and then made fully known in the first century. Well, these two prefatory remarks will, I hope, heighten our own sense of humility and reverence as we begin our study of this chapter. So let's look first just at the way Paul addresses this issue of God's relationship with Israel or to Israel in verses one through 10 of this 11th chapter. Israel's rejection of God's saving grace and God's rejection of them is not total. It's not total. If you look at verse one, Paul says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? And then he uses that that statement that's the strongest statement he ever uses to issue a denial By no means, by no means. And then what's his argument? Well, he immediately begins his argument by pointing to himself 
as exhibit A to disprove this idea that God has totally rejected his people. Paul himself is an Israelite. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. Yet here he is writing this letter as one who believes Jesus Christ is the Savior, is the Messiah. So Paul is saying, my own existence as a child of grace, accepted by God, the righteousness of Christ credited to me, disproves this idea that God has totally rejected his people. But then in verses 2 through 6, he once again appeals to Old Testament scriptures, to 1 Kings chapter 19 and the story there of Elijah, when Elijah, having had an incredible victory against the prophets of Baal under the power of God, now begins to get depressed and he's concerned and he thinks that there's nobody else who's loyal to the true God except him. And so Paul cites that conversation between Elijah and God where God assures him that there are still 7,000 men in Israel who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And then in verses 7 through 10, we see that God will always save his elect, even when he is judging others among the people where his elect are found. So God's faithfulness is never in question despite his people's apostasy. God's promises will always be fulfilled. There's nothing that can be done in this world that is going to overturn the eternal saving purpose of God to bring sinners to himself through Jesus Christ, his son. His rejection of Israel is not total. But then we see in verses 11 through 32, Paul speaks of this rejection not being final. Israel rejects God's saving grace, but it's not a final rejection. And God's rejection of them for rejecting his saving grace will not be final either. So we see in verse 11, another question that frames the rest of his argument here. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Finally, being completely cut off with no hope of any future grace. And he answers again in that same strong negative way, by no means. Instead, Paul begins to unfold to us here the mind of God in doing what he has done the way that he's done it in order to bring salvation to the whole world. And it's an amazing revelation. Israel's rejection, he says, is part of God's plan to show grace to the whole world. It's what he intended from the time that he chose Abraham and called Abraham to be the father of many nations. In verses 11 through 15, Paul elaborates this point that what happened to Israel and Israel's rejection of the grace of God in Christ and God's rejection of Israel actually served for the advance of the gospel throughout the world, especially among all the Gentiles. We see also in verses 16 through 24 that Israel's rejection encourages humility in believers and the fact that God has rejected those old covenant people for a time should cause all of us who are in Christ today to be filled with humility, not to boast that, oh, yes, you know, they were cut off so that we might be grafted in. Look at us. But no, recognizing that if God did that for saving purposes to extend his kingdom throughout the world, then we as non old covenant people should not think that somehow we are above being treated in the same way. What a blessing we've had in this nation to have the gospel so readily available to us. 
throughout all of our lives, everybody in this room, the Bible so readily available to us. And we have taken it for granted to our shame far too often. And Paul here is warning against that very kind of arrogance, that very kind of presumption that thinks, well, of course, of course, God has dealt with us bountifully. We will always have this kind of bounty available to us. He tells us rather we should live with a proper humility, reverence, and fear in knowing how God has dealt with his old covenant people in the past. In verses 25 through 32, we see that this rejection of Israel actually will reveal the greatness of God's mercy. To recognize that what he does here that seems harsh and unyielding is actually always an expression of his gracious, merciful purposes to save sinners from their sin. And then we come to the closing verses, verses 33 through 36. After Paul explains this mystery, and you could just almost sense him writing this out and he can't help himself. He's once again reminded of the greatness of God, the wisdom of God, the power of God and doing things that confound the wise of this world. And so he breaks out in this doxology. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. God's wisdom displayed in the way that he provides salvation in this world is inscrutable. That is, we're not competent to question him about it. We're not competent to sit in judgment upon him because his wisdom is being manifested all the time. And whereas we might think one thing as we look at certain parts of history and say, well, God should have done it this way as the history continues to unfold and we take the promises of what history will ultimately unfold to be, we will, like Paul, stand back and say, how incredibly wise of God. I mean, we see this in the cross, don't we? Who, who would save people through the death of the only righteous man who's ever lived? The cross is foolish to wise people. It's a stumbling block to religious people. People today hear this message that the only way to be made right with God is through a bloody, crucified Savior, and they scoff. They say, oh, well, go ahead with your little religion and you just have what you believe that's fine for you and yet to understand the truth of this world the righteous God who created people to be in his image and commissioned us to represent him in righteousness and our falling away from that and incurring his judgment against us because we've rebelled against him with no hope of ever making ourselves right with Him again, no hope of ever repairing what we've ruined, that this God would condescend to send His only begotten Son into the world to become one of us, to take our place, to represent us, to fulfill the righteous requirements that we're obligated to fulfill but cannot, and then, having earned righteousness, to lay down His life on the cross as if he were a sinner himself. With all of the power and authority in the world. 
such that he said he could have called legions of angels to come and annihilate the people who were crucifying him. But he chose not to do that. Why? So that there might be righteousness provided for people like you and me. So that we might be reconciled to our Creator. And we look at the cross and we see the wisdom of God, the righteous God who is just and must remain just, but He's determined through this way to be the justifier of those who have faith in Christ. So His righteousness isn't lessened at all. His mercy and His grace are magnified. Who could do that? Who comes up with that story? You don't find that in any of the world's religions. You don't find that in any of the the greatest composers in the world trying to put their wisdom down on paper. Oh, the riches of God's wisdom. It's inscrutable. The salvation that comes to us in God's wisdom is by sheer grace. Who's given anything to God so that we now look at God repaying us for our gift? That's what Paul says in verse 35. We don't bring anything to the table in order to have God accept us. We simply receive what God provides for us by grace. And then in verse 36, it ends with this. As a result, all glory belongs only to Him. Why? Or from Him, through Him, to Him are all things to Him. Him alone be glory forever. Of course. Because everything you are, everything I am, everything we have, all the good that we will ever experience in this life is because of God. So praise, honor, glory goes to Him. All theology leads to doxology. All the truth that God makes known to us should result in praise to Him from us. And the greatest, most stunning truth that God has revealed is His great grace and salvation in Jesus Christ. Therefore, as we come to know Christ and see more and more of the wisdom and power and goodness of God in Christ, the more we should be motivated, the more we should be encouraged to offer up our praise to Him with our whole lives. Let's be honest. The reason that we do not love God more, do not praise Him more, do not worship Him more, is because we don't know Him more. And the only way to grow in our knowledge of God is to think deeply about all that God is for us and has done for us in Jesus Christ. The salvation that Jesus has secured for people like us is real. It is eternally secure. To know Jesus, to trust Jesus, is to know God. To grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus is to grow in your recognition of the wisdom, power, love, and greatness of God. And such growth inevitably leads to deeper devotion to God, more faithful praise to God, more heartfelt worship of God. So if your devotion to God has waned, if you find it tedious to praise God, or if you regard worship as boring, as something you just have to endure, then you can be sure of this. The reason is you are not thinking clearly or deeply about all that God has done for sinners in Jesus Christ. So read carefully through Romans chapter 11 over the next several weeks. 
Ask the Lord to help you to see all that is revealed here in this chapter about the certainty of his saving purposes in Jesus. Ask him as you read Romans 11 to show you what he showed Paul. That you might see what Paul saw that resulted in this expression of praise and worship here at the end of this chapter. And let the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God and the unsearchableness of his judgments and the inscrutableness of his ways lead you into deeper and deeper expressions of devotion and praise to this creating, saving God. May the Lord help us as we do so. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for Romans 11. We thank you for the revelation of your wisdom and your power and your grace in Jesus Christ that Paul elaborates here. And we confess, we confess so often we just presume upon these things. You've been so good to us so long in so many ways that we can take it for granted. And we, we want to be stunned in fresh ways at the depths of your love and mercy for us in Christ. I pray that you would help us to see what Paul saw. I pray that your spirit would take your word and cause it to sink deeply into us and the promises that we have in Christ as we see them unfolding throughout history and in our own lives, that they would strengthen our faith to live boldly, zealously, fearlessly for you in this generation. Have your way with us, O God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.